Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. Patrick's uh, left side, and I don't know why. The, just I saw a lot in that between his legs. Here's Mark. What's to say? It's because my lucky sucks. We were uh, looking for breaks in this series, and uh, I think we we got all of them today. Woo! That was awesome. Remember that? Those sound bites from 2003. This is Minnesota Sports Rewind. Every Tuesday and Thursday, right now on Score North and the Score North app, you can find us live, or you can listen to all 16 current episodes and binge them. Wherever you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and the aforementioned Score North app. And it really helps spread the word about this show if you enjoy it. Please give it a five-star rating and give us a positive review and tell a few friends about Minnesota Sports Rewind. And gentlemen, I'm Phil Mackey. That's Judd Zolgad. Hello. We've got Declan Goff over here, two-thirds of Judd's Hockey Show, and myself as the third wheel on this episode. And this is all about, I think even today, after 20 years of wild hockey, the most fun wild season in history. There's a few in the mix in the Parisi Suter era, and we can discuss that. But this is certainly the deepest playoff run that they've made in their history. I was uh, as I went back and watched Game Seven of the Avalanche first round series last night, Phil Mackey, and then watched a uh, bunch of Game Six and, and also the Vancouver upset when the Wild won that series in seven games after being down three to one as they were to the Abs. You know what I realized? This is the greatest. Unexpected run by in the history of the state no. by a sports team. The '91 North Stars were not good and, and made a run all the way to the finals. But in your third year as an expansion team, you missed the playoffs, and, and in fact, would then miss the playoffs subsequently two years after that to get past a Colorado team laden not with all stars, Hall of Famers, Hall of Famers, mm-hmm. Blake, Waugh, Sackick, a guy like Forsberg. And then to get all the way to the conference finals as an expansion team with what I think we could argue is for certain one-star player is the greatest run by a professional sports team in this state as far as zero expectation when the first round started. There's a couple title contenders there that we'll get into when we get into the key questions. And Wes Walls will join the show in 25 minutes from now. But like Judd said, this was basically an expansion team. This was the third year in Wild franchise history. And they make a run to the Western Conference Finals, including two come-from-behind series wins, trailing three games to one. The one against Colorado is sort of the focus here, because that was the gateway. And that that Colorado team was still in its Stanley Cup window. I know that they they were two years removed from their last Stanley Cup, and that's the last one that they won, 1999-2000, or 2000-2001, somewhere in there. Uh, but like you said, all the legendary players, Patrick Waugh, uh, Peter Forsberg. So the Wild come back. Down three to one to win games five, six, and seven in that series, all by a score of three to two. The last two wins coming in overtime. You heard the Richard Park goal. You heard the Andrew Burnett goal in Game Seven. And I think Jacques Lemaire is a huge part of this episode too, because 
Not only was he famous for a Hall of Fame career in Montreal as a player, he's famous for uh, the neutral zone trap style of hockey that led the New Jersey Devils to a Stanley Cup championship in 94-95. But then, taking a near-expansion team in Minnesota as far as he did with as little firepower and star power as he did is right up there on his list of accomplishments. So, so I'll throw it out to you guys first. What do you remember most? Key question number one here. What do you remember most about that wild run in 2003? So I'll start. I, I had been on the uh, sports copy desk at the Star Tribune at that time, and they decided to ask me to help Chip Scoggins because our main beat guy, Tom Jones, had left at some point in February to take another job. And so Chip, my buddy, moved into the main beat job, and I, I was going to be the sidebar guy. And expectations at the Star Tribune for this series – First playoff series in team history were so low that they, for the first couple games in Colorado, as I recall, they didn't send a columnist. So just me and Chip, because the expectation was four games, maybe five. And the first premonition I had, or weird feeling I had about that team was, I was covering a practice, I think it was before game one, and I think it might have been here before they left for Colorado. And I was talking to the the defenseman, Willie Mitchell, if you recall Mm -hmm. him, who was a really nice player. And I'm talking to him about, you know, the expectations. And nobody at this point in time, the outside world is expecting nothing. And I'm talking to him about, you know, expectations, blah, blah, blah. And I remember he had the old, and a lot of players have this, the superstition of never saying Stanley Cup. They won't say the name. They call it the big chalice. They call it the big trophy. They call it. But the thought of the Minnesota Wild in 2003 pursuing the Stanley Cup seems so um, ridiculous to me. I'm thinking to myself, really? Like, like, okay, if you're with the Pittsburgh Penguins at that time or the Avalanche at that time, mm-hmm. I totally get it. You think you're going to make a huge playoff run, and you're probably right. Uh, but for Willie Mitchell to sit there and talk like he was on, at that time, not to denigrate them, a good team. I mean, this was a team that got in the playoffs. They're like a six seed. Yeah, and, and so they're okay, but they're certainly not great. And so it hit me at that point in time, these guys really believe. And and what I came to realize is I think a lot of that came from Jacques. I think a lot of that cool, calm, collected, Jacques just got it. And, and I remember his practices. He loved to coach. He absolutely loved. In fact, I think it was Chip or Patrick that once said to me, and they're exactly right, if you could have gone to Jacques and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. In fact, it applies to times like this. We're going to go into quarantine. You're going to have no fans there. You're going to drop the puck at 2 a.m. at the X, and you're going to play all of your games at 2 a.m. with no fans. Jacques would have been like, that's the greatest. I love that. No media, too. <laughs> Jacques and Kirk Cousins. And so yeah. this guy, yeah, So so, but Jacques loved to coach, and he had won so many cups in Montreal that he brought a certain a panache to this team that they probably had no business having. But from day one of that first-round uh, game in, in Pepsi Center against the Avalanche that they had. I just remember, too, because that's when, this is around the time I started becoming a really diehard sports fan, and I remember being in Florida on spring break for Game 6. I was still at my grandparents' house, but I made it back in time for Game 7 at home against Colorado, and I remember being in the basement with my dad and brother watching that game and just going bananas. But what I remember, too, about the team was it was this crazy hodgepodge of you still had most of the core players from the expansion draft, and then, obviously, Marion Gabrick anchoring being a superstar. I mean, the top five scorers on this team in age. Gabrick was 20 years old with 65 points. Pascal Dupuis, 23 years old with 48 points. Cliff Ronning, who Judd knows who I have a, a big man crush on when it comes to <laughs> obscure Minnesota sports athletes. The captain of the team in the first round. Yeah. A 30, Jim Dowd, I, I think, took over his, uh, and wore the C in Jacques' world in the second round. And... A guy like Cliff Ronning, same kind of thing like with, with a Nelson Cruz, a vet that's been around who comes here at 37 and is instrumental in kind of showing the team how we can do this. So it was crazy veterans. It was Gabrick and Dupuy taking the step up. But honestly, the anchors of the team were the goaltending. If, if they didn't have Fernandez and Rollison, this team probably didn't even make the postseason. I mean, the goaltending wasn't spread and butter. Yeah. So I remember kind of like Declan, I, I, I'm a little older than Declan is, but I didn't really. I was six years old when the Twins won the World Series in 1991, and so this was the first. And the and the Vikings they got they got beat in the '98 championship game, and they, like the big games that they would play in, they would get beat in. And the Twins were mostly irrelevant up until this point. But I think 
the 2002 Twins beating the A's in Game 5 to get to the next round, and then the Wild scoring that overtime goal in Game 7, those were sort of like, if you were born in the mid-80s or later, those were sort of like your championships at the time. Do you recall the Park goal in Game 6? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because that was a, oh, wow, they're going back. Yes. Like they like they just won that game? Yes. I, well, I, I remember exactly where I was. I don't remember where I was for the park goal. I remember watching it, but I remember specifically where I was when the Twins clinched game five in 2 Same. And I remember where I was when Brunette scored that goal in 3 I was, for whatever reason, I was listening to the game on the radio in my car on Highway 55 in Buffalo, Minnesota, which is where I went to high school. And I just remember when uh, Hawking caught the pop-up to end... Game five, I start honking like everyone on 55 is just like like at stoplights are just honking and cheering because everyone's listening to the game. Yeah. It's one of the coolest moments just sitting on 55 cool. at a stoplight in Buffalo and like everyone's honking and cheering out their windows. And I'm just like yelling and screaming. I'm alone in my car. I was watching with one of my best friends in high school when the Wild beat the Avalanche. And it's like the most we've ever freaked out watching a sporting event. Like Brunette scores that goal. I remember we ran outside and we're just screaming at the top of our lungs like, yeah, yes, you know, to get to the second round. But that's all you have. If you're born in the 80s and you're a Minnesota sports fan, like that's what, that's what you cling to. Hockey is great, too, though. Yeah. It's so intense and so much fun. And, yep. and they and they beat Patrick Waugh. That's the thing, too. That Avs team, the, the Canucks win in, in the second round is a fun win and was certainly a hostile series and enjoyable to watch. But, you know, they had guys like Bertuzzi. Okay, they're tough, but the abs were laden with all of these star players. And mm-hmm. the and, and you thought, I just remember thinking, they've got no chance. Forsberg, Sackick, Waugh, Rob Blake, their secondary guys were good. Yeah. yeah. And that's where you said, but, but the one thing that I will say, and the one place that we could certainly have a discussion about when hockey becomes less random, as you like to say, than it is during the course of the regular season, is the playoffs. And the one thing that became abundantly clear from game one was Jacques Lemaire against Tony Granado, who now is the coach of the Badgers. And Granado had just become a, he had been a player. He became a head coach. I think he took over for Bob Hartley, who was fired in December of that year. It became an instant mismatch because line matchups, styles of play, and Lemaire's systems worked so well, and Granado was lost. I'm not saying Granado single-handedly lost that series, but among series one in NHL playoff history, upsets at least, this probably gives as much credit to a coach in Jacques Lemaire as you can possibly give a guy. Yeah, I think Jacques had a proven track record. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you looked at it, they beat the Red Wings in 1995, right? The uh, Devils? Yes, yes, I believe that's right. Yes. They swept them. If I remember right, it was and, a four-game sweep. And that Devils team was good. Yeah, they were good too. But, but I think if you were to look at the rosters, you look at the, those Red Wings teams, and it's like Steve Eiserman mm-hmm. and Sergei Fedorov and all these top stars. And I think Jacques had a proven track record of his system being able to neutralize maybe a more talented and offensive firepower roster. It could slow him down. So like that was the chess match in this series against the Avalanche. Let's go back for key question number two. Let's go back to something you brought up near the beginning of the show here, and we'll get to West Walls in about 15 minutes. Where does this 2003 wild playoff run rank among improbable playoff runs or, or seasons, whatever you want to classify it as, by Minnesota teams? And if it's number one, it seems like you have it number one, what are some of the contenders? Like, who are some of the 87, runners up? 87 Twins probably are, are a contender. Now, if you look at their home and road splits, they're unbelievable. Yeah. They're, they're off the charts. That was a good Twins team. I think the 91 Twins team could win a World Series if you put them at Target Field, Fenway Park. Uh, the 87 Twins needed the Metrodome, but I still don't think that their run to a World Series title could be considered as improbable as this. The only one that I could come up with that rivaled this would be the 91 North Stars. And I looked this up today, that made a run to the Stanley Cup Finals and lost to Pittsburgh. That team had 68 points, which was 38 fewer than the Chicago Blackhawks. They bounced the Blackhawks, and then in the second round, played the St. Louis Blues, who had 37 fewer points than that North Stars team, and they beat them as well. And then they beat the Oilers uh, 4-1 to in the conference finals. That's the only one that I can see because the Wolves have never had, I don't think, what what you would consider an improbable playoff run because they they've had one and that was a good Wolves team, right? 
Yeah, that wasn't. Like, I mean, that's the, not a team. Wasn't that a you, no, they were they were the best team in the regular season in the NBA. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that that you'd be able to tell me and Declan about. How about the eight and seven 1987 Vikings that went to the NFC Championship game? Not improbable because of this. There, they were cost dearly by the replacement players that played three games, lost all three, and was they were an awful team. Okay, that Vikings team was actually good. So because they because they started two and three because those three games were like they went they started two and zero oh, and then the replacement players exactly. were only three, but it, they still like they had to beat San Francisco right. But that was a they the back to back upsets of the Saints and and San Fran were impressive. But if you had allowed that Vikings team without a uh, strike happening during the course of that season, if you had allowed that that Vikings team to play out the season, I think they probably win eleven games. If you include the regular season as part of the improbable run, excuse me, I might throw the 2017 Vikings in the mix. Yeah, to go 13 and three and then win a playoff game with Case Keenum as your starter against one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever live in Drew Brees, and then to go on to the NFC Championship Mm -hmm. game. And that's I'm not putting I I wouldn't put it above this 2003 wild playoff run. But when you include going 13 and three with Case Keenum and then winning a playoff game. That's would, on my list. I would also say the Gopher women's team to the Final Four run. I mean, I don't think anyone saw a Final Four run coming from that. Obviously, the big the Lindsay Whalen the Lindsay Whalen season with mm-hmm. Janelle McCarvel too. So I, I would put that in there. And I remember just being so enamored with also the Gopher men's hockey team, their first championship run. I don't know if we can class, classify it as improbable because that was a pretty loaded team with right. a Hobie Baker on it. Yep. But but in terms of just uplifting all the community and everyone being glued to their TV screens, I would put. This wild team, the Gopher women's team, and also the first time the men's hockey team won a title in 2 I'm trying to think of series with when they started the first round that we thought they've got no chance. Right. And I just, there have been a few, and ordinarily you turn out to be absolutely right. They just lose in four or five games. This was the one where they started to win and you said, oh, oh, hold on a second here. And then you kept thinking, okay, because they go down in 03. This wild team goes down, as we talked about, 3-1 to one to Colorado. And now you're like, okay, they're going back for Game 5. They're absolutely dead. And then they win Game 5. You're like, all right, they got lucky, but Game 6, right? Yeah. And it just continued to snowball and snowball. And and the air of confidence and, um, and the ability to bounce back that that collection had is what became, I think, their defining character. Okay, next key question here. So Jacques Lemaire... This amazing presence and this amazing style of play and clearly had a great hold on the room for a number of years there with the Wild. Does Minnesota win this series or go as far as they did with Jacques Lemaire not the coach? No chance. I think Wes Walls will confirm that. I would say zero chance. Jacques' system, uh, Jacques' uh Pedigree from his days with the Canadians and winning multiple Stanley Cups as a key part of that team. Didn't you win like seven or eight Stanley Cups or something as a player? Oh, yeah. Oh, those those Canadian teams were incredible. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Incredible. But the things that Jacques brought, and, and look, let's just strip away the uh, off-the-ice panache that Jacques had. Let's just go with style of play. If you come out and you say to yourself, all right, we're going to try and play defensive but match those Avs, you've got no chance. No, this was, and if the Avs had been coached by a more experienced coach, the end result might have been different there as well. But all of those things, I would say that if you take Jacques Lemaire um, from behind that bench and put in a different coach for that series, I think the odds in retrospect of that team coming away with a seven-game uh, series victory, Phil Mackey, is probably about 5%. I'm went, not kidding. I went back and looked at the 1995 playoffs because I was kind of curious about his blueprint with the Devils to go on and win a Stanley Cup. And I think the 1995 playoffs, like if you could put it in a frame, it's like it's his life's work as a coach. So New Jersey played 20 games during that postseason run. They swept the Stanley Cup finals. In 16 of those 20 games, they allowed zero, one, or two goals. Three shutouts in the first system, round. That system worked. A lot of people and didn't Brad like Dewar it. And Brad was their goalie, right? Yeah. So it helps to have a great oh, yeah. system and to have one of the great goalies yes. of all time. Um, but tell me more about what you remember from the, just the chess match or what wound up not even really being a chess match between Granado 
and Jacques Lemaire. I, I seem what to, were the biggest things that stood out? I seem to recall in game one that Jacques made it very clear that he was going to put um, the West Walls line, which is funny because it contained Gabbert too, so it provided offense, but he was going to put the West Walls line, and West Walls in particular, on Forsberg. And Forsberg was this big, domineering presence. I mean, he's a great player. And I recall that the sidebar that I wrote off of that game was something along the lines of... Forsberg's going to wake up in the morning and see Wes Walls at the table with him. It was just so ridiculous that Wes, because Wes was, you know, a fantastic defensive player as well. And his ability to stick with uh, Forsberg. And by the last game that I watched last night, Forsberg is so PO'd. He's going around. He crushes Gabrick. He crushes like three guys. And this was a big guy. So he, he was certainly not a player that you could push around. But just. Watching Forsberg's demeanor change and him getting so frustrated. And that was what Jacques was so good at. Finding ways to absolutely, positively frustrate you. In the last game, guys, the Wild does not lead that game until Brunette scores the goal. Yeah, They never led. They kept coming back. But Jacques didn't care. Jacques' whole thing was, was how can I best pin you up, frustrate you, you might have more talent, but I've got the guys that can at least combat that. What happened at the, just to fast forward, what happened with the divorce between Jacques and the organization? Was it just like, ah, oh, we just need a little more offensive nah, style think, of play? Like, what was... I think Jacques got tired and and um, did had Craig come in by then? Because Craig then, Craig bought the team in 2008 and I want to say fired Riser in 2009. And so I, but I think Jacques had just, was just done. And... Yeah. I think that if Jacques didn't love what he was doing, Jacques was not going to continue to do it, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think he perceived himself as a career coach and, oh, my God, if I don't coach, what do I do? I think Jacques said, I love doing this. I love teaching. And as long as it's my way, I'll do it. And then when it probably began to shift away from that and and certainly coming out of the lockout in 2005, the game had changed it got uh, opened up offensively. It was more fun to watch, thank God. But I think Jack said, I'm done. And he's a really smart guy, and he's a really intelligent guy, and I just think he said, it's time. Okay, is he is Jacques Lemaire one of the most underrated hockey figures in the history of the sport? When you think about, like, he didn't just play on these Canadians teams in the 60s <laughs> and key, 70s. He was player. one of the best players on championship teams as a player, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame player. He won a Stanley Cup as a coach in New Jersey. In fact, his career win-loss record is 617-458 and then like 100 ties. So like wildly successful, no pun intended, as a coach in the NHL. So he's, he's, got, he's got cups as a player, Hall of Fame credentials as a player. He's got a cup as a coach and a bunch of winning seasons, took an expansion team to the Western Conference Finals, and yet... I mean, locally, we appreciate Jacques Lemaire, but in, in Montreal, I'm sure they appreciate Jacques Lemaire. But is he like when you think of, boy, like the 15 or 20 biggest hockey figures, he's not even someone that comes into the conversation, is he? I think the should he? the he should. And, and I think the answer to your question is he's not appreciated as much in the States. In Canada, I think he probably is. Um, but here's the thing with Jacques, and this is what made him so fun to cover. And the guy was a character. He didn't he didn't. He wasn't trying to be a character, but he was. And the most interesting thing that I found about Jacques was this. He doesn't care that the answer to your question might be, might be he should be, but he's not. He never cared about that. He cared about coaching. He cared about playing. And I think as long as things were essentially on his terms, he was fine. But if you go to Jacques now, and I think he's down in Florida on a boat somewhere fishing. I think if you go to Jacques now and you say, Jacques, listen, I think that you should have been appreciated more. You've got, as you said, Phil, all these cups and coaching success. I think he would say, I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. I just, I'm just happy for the I guys. I just play and I coach. Yeah. Coach is coach. Coach the guys. But he was a character, and, but man, he had, he, he had a collection that year, though, of players who I think absolutely lived by what he told them to do, and that is why they got so far. Okay, next key question. So they just got absolutely stonewalled in the Western Conference Finals. I guess my key question is, what the hell happened against the Ducks and John Sebastian Jaguar? 
So the series went like this. The first game was a double overtime, one to nothing win by the Mighty Ducks. Yep. So just a, a tough one to swallow if you're the Wild. Yep. You had a shot to get out to a one nothing lead, and uh, and you couldn't get anything past Jaguar. You lose the next game two to nothing, and then you lose game three four to nothing. So at this point, you've been outscored seven goals, and you have not scored yet in the series. Yep. And they wind up finally scoring a goal in game four. But they lose two to one. So they they play four games, get swept by Jean Sebastian Jaguar and company, and big pads, uh, and, big and they, they wind up with one goal in four games. Is there anything that could have been different had no. they run that series back? You know what? Did they just run out of uh, exactly. They had home okay. ice too. Remember that they had they, home ice. They started the series, yeah, two home uh, games. I think they were absolutely positively by that point gassed. I think they were absolutely and and the Ducks. So here, here's what's weird. So they're the sixth seed. If I'm not mistaken, the Ducks were the seventh seed or eighth seed. The Ducks were below them. The Ducks were a really good team in retrospect now um, and obviously got great goaltending from a guy with huge pads and a big jersey. But that being said, I I think Wes will tell us that by that point, they were just absolutely out of gas. And you know what? They probably should have been. Like when you look at those first two series, the OT games, uh, the the uh, uh, Canucks series in the second round was incredibly physical and incredibly difficult. The Ducks, meanwhile, swept the Red Wings in the first round, yeah. so they got to chill out yeah. for like an extra week going into the second it. round. I think that was just it. Yeah, here's here's John Sebastian Jaguar's game log. Well, he did give up some goals in the Dallas series. Like he gave up three goals in the last two games of that Dallas series, but shut out, shut out, shut out. And then he gave up one goal in the last game of the of the series. Then he gave up two, three, and two, but a shutout in game four of the Stanley Cup Finals. He did give up six goals to uh, to the Devils in game five, I believe it was. Like they fi- they finally solved him in the Stanley Cup Finals. But it is one of the all time great goaltending series you're ever going to see in the history of hockey. Should we get to West Walls next year? Let's do it. All right, this Good. this is Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events, games, trades, you name it. And you can go binge all 16 current episodes on the Minnesota Sports Rewind podcast feed, Apple, Spotify, or the Score North app. Key cog in that run to the Western Conference Finals, Wes Walls joins us to tell stories. Score North Download, Declan Goff. This download is brought to you by PodMN, which is your number one source for local and on-demand Minnesota audio. Discover hundreds of unique podcasts produced right here at home. Download the PodMN app on the Apple or Google Play stores. Right now, we're breaking down the Wilds 2003 run to the Western Conference Finals. We'll be joined by Wes Walls here in just a minute, but be sure to go to scorenorth.com and the Score North mobile app for the latest on the Odell Beckham trade rumors of the Vikings, draft day scenarios, as well as Antoine Winfield, who joined Purple Daily, which you can hear every day at 2 o'clock right here on Score North. Until then, we'll get back into Minnesota Sports Rewind with Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad. Uh, left side, and I don't know why. The, just I saw a lot in that between his legs. Here's Mark, right side, Mark, 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 Richard Park has scored. He has Welcome back in. Minnesota Sports Rewind here where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events, games, trades, you name it. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, Declan Goff is here. They make up two-thirds of Judd's hockey show. And our next guest was a key cog in the team that we're talking about, the 2002-2003 Minnesota Wild Run to the Western Conference Finals, basically an expansion team still. And Wes Wall spent seven years as a Minnesota Wild player. You catch him on Fox Sports North over these past several years. Wes, thank you for coming to the show. It's probably tough to not get goosebumps listening to some of those calls after all these years still. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. I, uh, you know, when I knew I was going to sit down and talk with you guys about uh, about this series, I actually did a little bit of homework and 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 looked back and and listened to some of the watched some of the highlights. I still haven't watched uh, any of those games from beginning to end. I can't find them anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, it does bring back a lot of 
um, amazing memories. There's no doubt about that. And, and Wes, what, what's the first thing that came back to, to you as you uh, sat down and began to watch highlights from those series? What didn't What didn't you recall that you saw and thought, "Wow, that was fun"? Um, I guess the like the one thing now that I'm kind of racking my brain to think back about what we were going through. I remember the last game of the season, uh, and, and guys, we had a really good team. I mean, we had finished, I think with 104, 105 points. I mean, we didn't just limp into the playoffs. I know we finished, I think as a six seed, mm-hmm. um, but we didn't limp into the playoffs. We were playing some good hockey down the stretch. I remember the last game of the season we played at home and it was an afternoon game and we were done the game by, you know, four or five o'clock and, um, there were still games to be played, you know, on the West Coast and things like that. And I remember being out with a few of the guys and some of the wives who went out for dinner. And I specifically remember, now there was a chance we were going to play Vancouver. Uh, I can't remember the other team. St. Louis, right, Wes? Yeah, maybe St. Louis. There was like a a 5% chance that we were going to play uh, Colorado. We, We all were sitting around the table with our wives and we're like, Hey, listen, the only team we don't want to play is Colorado. <laughs> and, I think, and that night, and, and now looking, I actually looked back uh, yesterday at the uh, at the regular season games. All Vancouver had to do in the last game of the season was beat the LA Kings, who were terrible at, at home, and they lost 2 nothing at home. And we're in the late game, and we're looking at each other going, okay, look, looks like we hooked Colorado. <laughs> so that's how that ended up playing out. We uh, We really wanted nothing to do with the Avalanche. Um, going into that, going into that series, we were pretty comfortable. We knew if Vancouver won at home, that we, there was a good chance we're gonna, we were going to hook them in the first round. So that's kind of how that all played out. So Wes, as far as that went, and I uh, covered that series for the Star Tribune along with Chip Scoggins at the time. From an outsider's perspective, you know, going in to uh, that first round series, I remember as a hockey fan thinking internally that it would probably be four or five games and that the Avs would advance. Uh, but in starting to cover you guys and the practices leading up to game one, I remember there certainly being a feeling from you guys that, oh, no, no, we, we've got a chance that there, that, that there was a, that there was a quiet confidence I didn't expect. How true in, in retrospect was that confidence and how much of a role did just the, um, just the fact that you had a Hall of Fame coach in Jacques play in that confidence? Well, your your feel for our team was obviously pretty good because, you know, I remember talking as, as a group. I mean, we could not believe uh, what the pundits were saying about our team. We, we couldn't believe it. Like, there, we had a tough time, I remember, finding anyone that even thought that we were going to win a game in the series. And we're like, can you believe this? They don't even think we're going to win a game. And we didn't know really how it was going to play out, too, um, obviously. But we knew we were good enough to hang with the Colorado avalanche as good as their team was. Um, and one of the other things that, that kind of jogged my memory is before the, uh, there was three or four days of practice, as you mentioned before we, uh, we flew out to Denver. I remember uh, Mike Ramsey uh, bringing in a, like, I guess it wasn't an easel, but it was like a, a black and white board and brought it into the locker room and Jock had all their lines up on the board, and he had them all in small writing. I'll never forget it. He had Forsberg's name at center uh, in small writing, and then above that it had my name in, in big letters. <laughs> and then underneath it was Sackick's second line, um, and then it had Darby Hendrickson's name, Darbs, right underneath it. So when that when we were sitting around the locker room, and he kept that up for two or three days in the, in the locker room, and the more you looked at actually the matchup, the more we actually – and I, we talk, I remember talking to some of the players about this. The more we're like, hey, guys, we can hang with these guys. We, we know their top two lines. We have to shut them down. Their, their top six are probably the best in the National Hockey League. But we looked at our bottom six, and we looked at theirs. You know, our, our, our third line, whoever you want to say, was Bruno and, and Sergei Zoltark and Richard Park and Ronning and Darbs and Pascal Dupuis and Laxanen. I mean, I loved our third line and even our, our fourth line with Jimmy Dowd against uh, – against their their bottom guys and no one ever gave us credit for this but one of the one of the key things uh that that when the expansion happened that when they when they were trying to build the minnesota wild team when when jock was the first the first year one of the the key factors in their team obviously was character that was going to be an important part but we we had a we had a fast team i mean we had a fast team that no one ever gave us credit for you you know, myself and Marion and Auntie Laxon was a guy that never got tired. Parksy could fly. 
Pascal Dupuis went on to win a couple cups and score 30 goals. Darbs, Darbs is an outstanding skater. Willie Mitchell, great skater. Uh, Andre Zuzan, I don't know if anybody remembers him, but, I mean, this guy could fly. I mean, we had a faster team than they did. There was no doubt about it. And we knew we were going to be in a lot of close games with them. The key for us was, were we going to, how was our power play going to perform? Could we score the big goal at the right time? And could we get the big save at the right time? And we got both of those during that during that series, even without Cliffy running. I think Cliffy only played uh, maybe three or four games. He was a, a very important player for us in the, in the playoffs. And, and uh, you know, in that, in that, uh, in that, in that whole round there, Mary or uh, Manny Fernandez. I mean, he played outstanding uh, as well, and, and outplayed Patrick Watt. So that was another couple of the big reasons why we were able to get past Colorado. But we did think, uh, Judd, we did think that we had a really good chance to beat them. It wasn't just a, a fallacy going into that series. So Wes, you guys, you guys did take Game One. You you win Game One. You sort of you you stun them in Denver four to two, uh, but then you fall behind, losing the next three including two home games in which you scored only one goal in the two home games. So now you're down three games to one against a team that has four Hall of Famers on it that is still in a Stanley Cup window, and you're going back to Colorado for Game 5. What was that like? Well, that was that was tough. I, uh, I, I remember uh, Game 1, we came out of the out of the gates in game one of the Pepsi center. And we punched them right in the face right away. I mean, th- I think we were up two or three, nothing like six minutes into the game. And that was huge for our confidence. I mean, we talked about all this in the locker room and practice Judd, you and, and Phil, you guys, I mean, we talked about all that stuff, but to come out in Denver and punch them in the nose right out of the gate, that gave us amazing amount of confidence. Um, and, and, you know, we won that game honestly pretty handily. Um, I know the shots were 41. I was just looking back. The shots were 41 to 30 or whatever, but I thought that was one of the best games that we played. And we actually played really good in the games that we lost. All those games were, you know, one, two goal games. Uh, I'm looking at the shots on goal. The, the one game they beat us at home, three nothing. The shots were 18 to eight. We held them to 18 shots and gave up three goals. We had a tough time scoring goals, um, as you know. But we felt pretty good about our game. We were a little bit beaten up and demoralized. And I do remember um, practicing. Um, we flew. We practiced in Minnesota, then flew out. And the coaching staff were not happy with at all with our practice. Um, and how we practiced, uh, they could obviously sense that there was something wrong. And so Doug Risebrow, Jock Lemaire, everybody, called. after we went out for dinner uh, as a team, we, we had a meeting back at the hotel around 8 or 9 o'clock at night that night. And I'll never forget the conversation that Doug Risebrow uh, got in front of our group and talked about their lives and playing in Montreal and winning Stanley Cups and what it took. And the one word that always stuck out to me when Doug was talking in front of the group was, momentum that was the one thing that he said to me is or they said to our team was the playoffs are all about momentum and if you can just get one win if you can just get one win all of a sudden the pressure goes back on the other team so I just remember walking out of that meeting and that meeting was probably 45 minutes long I just remember walking out of that meeting and wanting to run over the Pepsi Center that (laughs) night to play game five um, because that's how pumped up we felt as a team. And, and uh, sure enough, game five, we went in there, and I think we spanked them 7-2. Seven, seven we played a, a really good game and had and got a, you know, a few bo- uh, breaks along the way. And uh, um, so I, that's kind of a story that uh, – so the, the, those stories that those guys could share with us with the Montreal Canadiens really, really helped us uh, as, as the playoffs went along. Wes, the, the continuity of that team, I mean, most of it was the same from when the when the team was formed here in 2000. Obviously, you had Ronning here, and I know Rolison was in the fold, but it was kind of like almost the young talent like Gabby and Pierre-Marc Bouchard, who I knew deb- debuted that year. It's almost like everything just came together at the right time. What did, what did you see from the team that you didn't see maybe in the first season with the Wild? Um. Well, you know, Marion Marion was a couple of years older. I mean, his first year he was an 18-year-old kid. I think he got 18 goals his first year, but I mean, he was a better player second and third year. I mean, he was I think he scored 13 goals in 18 games in the playoffs there for us. I mean, he was a stud, man. And uh so he was a, he was like a superstar even in his in his third year. Um we picked up Cliffy Ronning that we didn't, you know, our first year, you know, FSN has played a couple of these games back. I, I know the very first game that we played the FSN just showed recently and then also the first game we ever played Dallas and we beat them six nothing I'm looking back at some of those teams and yeah we played hard but we didn't have a whole lot of talent and you know guys that weren't on that team the in the first year Pascal Dupuis 
Andrew Burnett, Cliff Ronning. Think about think about that. Yeah. And Richard Park wasn't on that team. So we added just those four guys two years down the road. And think about how important those guys uh, were for us to 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 be able to make make the next step. I know Cliffy Ronning. We traded for a, I think a fourth round pick throughout the summer. I mean, he didn't get a lot of uh, notoriety, but man, in the locker room, he was great, and uh, um, he was a big reason. And I think that year, if you look back at the power play, I think our power play finished first in the National Hockey League for percentage. And we won a lot of games, especially against the undisciplined Vancouver Canucks in that series against Vancouver. But we honestly, guys, we were a much better team our third year uh, of existence than we were our first year, just because of some of the moves that were that were made. When Parks uh, scores the OT goal in Game 6, and obviously you got the puck and fed him, uh, take me back to the feeling in that building of that team because that was, uh, certainly in that playoff run, Wes, that was an electric moment. It was awesome. It was cool. It it was so cool. And uh, uh, just watching the the video here earlier this morning, uh, um, when that puck went went through his legs, and uh, like I said, I haven't watched the whole game from beginning to end, but um, I would say out of all the games that we played in that series, that game I remember was the game that we dominated the most. E- even the, I mean, the, I know we beat them seven two up in Colorado, but the game that we played at home, we when we won in overtime, we were up two nothing. They scored two goals in like two minutes near the end of the second period, and we didn't get down on ourselves. But we we really took it to Colorado, even when we were up two nothing and had a lot of great opportunities to really put that game out of reach. And the fact. Uh, they had Patrick Waugh made a couple big saves, kept them in it. But, um, you know, game seven overtime was a little bit different than game six. I, we got the three or four minutes of the overtime in, in, in Colorado in game seven. We got outplayed a lot. Manny had to make two or three huge saves. Game six at home against Colorado, we had three or four great chances even before Parksy scored. We we kind of took the play to them. But um, kicking that puck to the outside and, and, and getting to the net, hoping there was going to be something laying around. When I saw that puck, when I went flying by the net and I saw the puck go into the net, I mean, I just, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, man, we're going to Denver. Let's go. <laughs> it was exciting. Amazing. It's, yeah. Uh, Wes Walls, by the way, is our guest here on Minnesota Sports Rewind, doing a deep dive into the 2003 wild playoff run. And uh, we'd love to hear more about Jacques Lemaire just as, as a magician, as somebody who had mastered a certain defensive system, you know what what was he like as a coach, both tactically and psychologically for you guys? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of psychological warfare with Jock. Like you didn't have to wor- think about what he was thinking, or I mean, he was pretty black and white. I mean, he you knew exactly where you stood with Jock. Um, for a guy that didn't spend a lot of time in the locker room. He never, ever come into a locker room after a game. I shouldn't say that. He probably, in the seven years I was there, he probably come into the locker room after a game to talk maybe five times. Um, but he never spent a lot of time in the locker room. He felt that was a, a place where the player should be. And for a guy that didn't spend a lot of time in the locker room, he had a tremendous amount of, uh, um, I don't know, he had a, he had a tre- tremendous feel for the pulse of the locker room and knowing exactly what was going on. But... In, in my opinion, what separated Jock from, from other coaches, and I'm sure it's a big reason why he wanted to be a coach of an expansion team, is he knew he wasn't going to have a whole, whole bunch of egos. Guys weren't making five, six million dollars a year that say, listen, I need to play 20 minutes. He had a lot of guys that were going to play really, really hard, and he could mold us. His, his ability on the bench, um, to change guys, get guys on and off the ice was a big, big reason why we had the success that we did. Um, in the playoffs. And if you look at when we played in Denver and, and we did this a little bit during the season where, where we would change just the centermen. So Jock wanted certain centermen to play against certain lines on the other side. The reason he did that is because he didn't want to change three guys. It was too much to change three guys uh, on the fly. He only wanted to change the centermen. So during the playoffs, I played with Laxo guy. We all, all of us centermen, Darby, Jimmy, uh, we all played with different wingers, but my job was anytime Forsberg was on the ice, I was going to play against him. So if you can imagine, we didn't have last change in Colorado. My line goes on the ice. I take the face off. Let's say I'm taking it against uh, uh, Steven Reinprecht. Everybody knows on the bench, Jimmy, and only the centermen, Jimmy and, and Darby know that I'm taking the face off. Hopefully I win it, and I win it, win the draw or whatever, and I'm coming right off the ice because Forsberg's not on the ice. So we would only change one guy 
and they did the same thing with uh, with Willie Mitchell getting defensemen on and off the ice. Hmm. Um, and I can promise you, in that seven game series, Joe Sackick and Peter Forsberg did not see. Brad Brown and Lubomir Sekarash on the ice. They didn't play a minute against those guys. Yeah, it was a and, good call. <laughs> and we had no chance to, to beat them if, if that was going to be the case. So guys needed to be sharp on the bench. Like, you could not fall asleep on the bench, okay? Mike Ramsey was on the bench pretending he was looking at the ice. He would be the guy that would be looking over at the other bench, looking at their centermen to see who was up next. So if we had to change on the fly, he would yell out Forsberg or Sackick so everybody knew who was going next. You would look at all kinds of little t- telltales on the bench. Like, I don't know what they were, but I know Mike Ramsey spent more time looking at their bench from our bench to know exactly who was going on. We were able to get a lot of guys on and off the ice properly, um, gave us gave ourselves the, the best chance to win, and he was a big reason why we won. And we did some of that stuff during the regular season a little bit, but in the playoffs in, this, in those two rounds, especially when we played out in the road, the centermen coming on and off, and trying to get Willie Mitchell and Philip Kubo out there against uh, Forsberg was a big reason why we got by those guys. So Bruno scores uh, the the uh, goal in the last game in OT West to win it. And if you go back and watch, there is a look of uh, bemusement, I think, on Jacques and Mario's faces. And Ramsey's mouth is literally, I kid you not, <laughs> agape, like what the hell just <laughs> happened? How long, how long did it take you guys to absorb that you were taking them not only the distance into OT, but beat a team that had Forsberg, as you said, Rob Blake, Patrick Waugh, Joe Sackick. I mean, this this was a star-laden team. What what was the immediate feeling that came over you and your teammates after that? I mean, it was euphoria. I mean, it was, it was amazing, especially, um, I think especially the way that overtime played out. Uh, you know, I think we scored probably three and a half minutes into the overtime. Uh, I think we got into their zone maybe one other time in the three and a half minutes. They spent the whole uh, three minutes in our zone. Um, Manny had to make one huge save on Rob Blake. Uh, I want to say two minutes into the overtime, a glove save. That was the only really great scoring chance that they had. Um, but it was a little bit of rope-a-dope. I mean, we knew going into the series that, and we actually talked about this, guys, we knew we were playing a better a team that had more skill than us. We were probably going to spend a little bit more time in our own zone than we were going to spend in their zone. And we were comfortable with it. We talked about it. It's okay. So when the, the fans are going crazy because we're spending a little bit, we, we just stayed confident, stayed patient. And, and we knew that that was the world we were going to live in. You could see that they were starting to get frustrated. Forsberg was yelling at the refs, especially at home. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, the, the scene of, of Mike Ramsey, there's a wide shot. I know exactly what you're talking about, but, you know, Rammer might have looked like that, but I can promise you Jacques, uh, Jacques and Mario didn't look like like that. They looked, I mean, I still remember Jacques looked like the proud papa, the grandpa, um, just letting his boys go out and do their thing and act like uh, 10-year-old kids. But, uh, um, yeah, it was, it's, it was that, that view actually on the bench uh, was, was, pretty, was pretty amazing and uh and the guy that was in the middle of that was Jock, and he was a, he, he was a he was a big reason why we were able to to do what we did uh, in the playoffs that year. Hey Wes, we got about sixty seconds here, but I just I, I want to throw at least one question about the the conference finals at you. What was the number one reason why you guys just didn't have it? It was it was it fatigue or was it John Sebastian Jaguer's ridiculous jersey and pads? Like what what was the number one reason why you guys only had the one goal in that series? Well, you know Jaguer played unreal. I know we scored one goal, but uh, I was looking back at the box scores of those four games. We outshot Anaheim in three of the four games. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, we had more than two or three scoring chances a game. He was unbelievable. Uh, game one, we knew that they, uh, they had swept somebody and were sitting there for 10 days, and we knew that we needed game one. They were not going to be on top of their game. They hadn't played in a long time. And for us to outplay them as bad as we did, I mean, we should have won that game 3 nothing, 4 nothing, 5 nothing. That's how good we were probably the best game we played in the playoffs. And to lose that game in overtime after out shooting them like 40 to 21 or something like that dominated them. I remember coming back into the locker room after uh, Sikora scored that overtime goal. And that was double overtime. That was, that was a tough one. I, there was a different feeling in our locker room after losing that game that I hadn't felt in the playoffs, even after we had lost some tight games in the first round. So, um, and I think that just kind of steamrolled as the, as the series got on, they got better 
Um, the Jaguar stuff about the uniform stuff still pisses me off to this day. I don't know. I, I just know that I don't know what he had in his breezers to, and you know, there was some. <laughs> like, there a was net, some Wes, like a net, Wes. Like a net down there. There's, well, whenever I come in on a goalie, I never saw a lot of net anyway, but like when, when, when you come in on Jaguar, like when he would go down a butterfly position, I just remember his shoulder pads popping up to the roof. Um, so I don't know what he had going on inside his locker or in, inside his, uh, Jersey and stuff like that, but he won the Conn Smythe uh, award that year. But anyway, it's uh, it, it was tough really to know that you got that close to potentially winning a Stanley Cup because um, Anaheim wasn't a lot better than us. They played a very similar game to us. They had better goaltending than us in that series, and that was really the difference. And to to come that close to win a Stanley Cup was uh, was tough to take. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming on, man. Thank this you, Wes. Is, this is great stuff. No we problem, love this. guys. It's fun. No problem. Anytime, guys. Take care. All right. That's Wes Walls from Fox Sports North and uh, seven years as a key cog for those Jacques Lemaire wild teams, including the 2003 playoff run that we have done a deep dive into. We got, I don't know, a minute or two left here for just one more key question. And I think it's because we've, we've, we've mentioned this player's name, but I think it's worth just wrapping up the episode with Marion Gabryk. Is Marion Gabryk underappreciated just based on how I think we, we always label him as well. Like he was injured all the time, right? right. No, but he was also amazing. You're right. We don't think of him as one of these great Minnesota athletes. Yes, when we probably should. Yes, he, he was. If, if you go back and watch that kid now, he's a superstar. He is a sniper. Mm-hmm. He is what this franchise has been begging or trying to find, and the fan fan base, I guess, is the right way to put this, has been begging for for years. Marion Gab- Gabbert, to this day, is the leading goal scorer in wild history, and he's been gone, I think, since 2008-9. Yeah. So, yes, he is. Go back and watch this kid's talent and tell me how, and, I, and I'm guilty of this too, how to this day do we not still speak of, of him with the reverence that we speak of great goal, ten, or great goal scores in North Star history? I'm not quite sure, but we probably should. Yeah, his last full season, so he played a partial injury season in 2008-2009. He only played 17 games. But the year before that, he played 77 games, 42 goals, 83 total points. He was a plus 17 on the ice. And so much fun to watch. I yeah. mean, even if you weren't a hockey fan, you had to appreciate every time he was on the ice. Yeah. It's a pure sniper. Yeah. Yeah, they could have used him that like was great. 10 years, like like eight years later. That was great. If, stuff if you could have put West him Wall. in the middle of the Parisi, oh, yeah. Suter. West Walls, man, he delivered. That he was helmet. awesome. He did homework. That was a great behind the scenes look. Yes. Yeah. At one of the great playoff runs, if not the most exciting impromptu playoff run in Minnesota sports history. This has been another episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. You can find all of the episodes. If you're looking to binge something this weekend, go to Apple or Spotify or the Score North app and just look for Minnesota Sports Rewind. Please, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review as it helps spread the word about this show if you enjoy it to other Minnesota sports fans. Smart speaker is the radio that everyone used to gather around. That was then, this is now. To say, Alexa, open score north. Game 163, the 2006 Twins, 09 Vikings, Prezi and Suter, and hey, even the uh, 2003 Wild Team. We live them all this Sunday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. with the Minnesota Sports Rewind Marathon on Score North on AM 1500, scorenorth.com, and the free Score North app. Minnesota Sports Rewind, available where. He knows you once ate an entire sheet cake. He knows your selfie life isn't your real life. He knows what goes down in the DMs. Shouldn't you know your dog better? Now you can learn his inner secrets with Embark, the highest-rated dog DNA test. Unlocking over 350 breeds and screening for over 215 genetic health risks. Go to EmbarkVet.com and use promo code DNA, that's DNA, to get $60 off an Embark Breed and Health Kit or Purebred Kit with free shipping. That's promo code DNA to save today.